Welcome back, everybody, to Thanks, Good Talk, a podcast by the Hogan Lovells Government Relations and Public Affairs team. Today, we have a really exciting lineup. We have two of my favorite colleagues, or favorite colleagues for today, that should, I, I should clarify, um, Tim Bergreen. Tim, let's start with you. So um, tell us about yourself. Tell us how you got here. Tell us about um, your time you know, on the Hill and all your exciting career leading up to this day. Sure, thanks, Ivan. Uh, happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Chess. Um, got to Hogan about 18 months ago. Um, after 22 years in the US government, 20 years of which were spent on the Hill, most on the House side, I spent about a dozen years as Congressman Adam Schiff's chief of staff, handling all of his national security and space work um, while I was there as well, and then moved down to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, where I was uh, for a short time the minority deputy staff director, then staff director, and then when the Democrats took the House in 2019, I was the majority staff director until I left in the middle of 2021. So very happy to be here and looking forward to a great discussion. Thanks. And our second guest is Chess Garrison. Chess, um, happy to have you on our podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us how you got to be who you are and anything else that's relevant. My name is Chess Garrison. I'm a counsel here in the Hogan Lovell's Government Relations Group. I've been here for a little bit over a year at this point now. Um, seems like longer in some ways and shorter in other ways. Um, I started my career out um, working for Senator Ted Kennedy um, just out of college um, way back when and worked for him uh, in varying roles of everything from driver and advance man to um, working on policy on the um, Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. Uh, Worked for him, um, stayed on after he passed away, um, and worked for Senator Tom Harkin for about a year, um, then decided um, it was time to go to law school, um, for lack of anything better to do uh, in some ways. Uh, so I went to law school uh, at Catholic University here in D.C., um, worked for two years as a practicing lawyer, um, realized I'd made a huge mistake and did not want to be a practicing lawyer anymore. Uh, so um, went back to the Hill uh, where I work for Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on his Judiciary Committee staff for um, over six years. And um, just to boost my political credentials, I went in 2015 thinking I would be walking into a Clinton, Hillary Clinton administration in a Democratic Senate um, and spent the first uh, almost five years of my career in a Trump administration and a, uh, a Republican-controlled Senate. So um I guess take anything I say from this point on with a grain of salt. <laughs> that's, um, you know, I think that's something we all have in common, right? So we all lived through the glorious years of the Hillary Clinton administration, one and two, as well as probably the John Kerry administration. That was a glorious time. Um, well, thanks for being here, guys. Um, you know, I thought we would start by talking a little bit about uh, the elections we went just went through and obviously, you know, the resulting dynamics in both the House and the Senate we're starting to see play out. But Tim, given your sort of House experience and your political acumen, can you just start off our conversation by teeing us up and talking a little bit about the, the election results, what they're translated into, and how you see this playing out in the House? Sure. If there is one thing that I think every Republican uh, prognosticator was united on, you know, pretty much for the last two years, it was that the Republicans were going to take back the House in 2022. 
And if you, you know, sort of look at the way that McCarthy um, ran the campaign um, and sort of messaged around this, you know, he was supremely confident. He was supremely confident not only that they were going to take the House back, but they were going to take it back by a fairly large margin. And, you know, the Democrats did an amazing job at, you know, keeping their heads down, at legislating, at working with the White House, at looking to cut deals with Senate Republicans, and ended up, you know, doing much, much better than anybody expected in the midterms. And so instead of, uh, you know, comfortable 15 to 20 seat margin in the House, McCarthy finds himself with like a five seat margin in the House and a large restive group of, you know, sort of whatever, you know, I know Biden calls them MAGA Republicans, call them what you will, um, but people who are going to make his life miserable and actually made his last week miserable. And so I think that that really is a preview for the two years to come in the House. Um, you know, it will be a lot of fun to watch, uh, and I'm glad I'll be doing it from the outside. Those were some fantastic observations, Tim. I think, you know, I think it's interesting because this is one of the spaces that, um, and maybe we can get you in here, Chess, to comment on this, because I think this is one of these spaces that I think people around town that are in the advocacy business, you know, like they, they, they really are left to have to navigate two view, views of what happened in the elections. Right. They, they have to navigate the view that you just articulated that I subscribe to, that Democrats subscribe to. Right. So there's that narrative in Washington, D.C. percolating through, you know, all of the Hill newspapers, you know, talking heads, et cetera. But there's also a narrative that is percolating that is coming out, you know, um, from Republicans and, and some of their allies, you know, which basically says, like, nothing to see here. We've taken control, you know, um, you know, uh, McCarthy, Speaker of the House, we have the gavels, we control the House. And now this town is a divided government, right? Like now you and I can sit here and talk through and try to sort of, you know, tease out exactly what the factual situation is. But if you're trying to put together a strategy in Washington, D.C., you kind of have to pick and choose which way you're going to approach this because that sort of sets the tone for how you spend your time and days. What what do you think, Jess? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some respects, both are a little bit right. I mean, I think the last week will quickly be not if not forgotten, but sort of look back on and we'll sort of laugh about it in a few months or next at this time next year. Um, but I think the underlying dynamic is very much going to play out, you know, over and over again, and that you're going to have a group of recalcitrant um, sort of extreme Republicans that are now feel even more empowered because of what happened last week, um, really trying to gum things up and grab headlines and controversy and cable news hits. Um, and so I think it's sort of the million dollar question, I think, is how are you know, is the rest of the Republican membership in the House going to navigate that? Are they going to capitulate? Are they going to look to, you know, cut deals where they can with Democrats and try to do an end run around them? Um, obviously, the rules package that was put together sort of further emboldens the the extreme wing, but there are still, um, you know, ways around that and some off ramps built in on things like the debt ceiling. Um, you know, I, I think that, yeah, the million dollar question is really going to be 
you know, what what is McCarthy and what are, what are his team's next move going to be? Is it going to be to give in or is it going to be to um, maybe let let that the extreme wing have their way for a while and then when it proves that that's not a way to govern, um, you know, turn to turn over to maybe a more um, I think I think in our memo we called it a coalition of the willing. You know, I'm, I'm not optimistic there's going to be an Eric Sorkin moment here. Um, where, you know, everybody comes together and sings Kumbaya. But I do think that there are, um, you know, on limited things and, and on big big picture things, I think there is a there is an avenue for some bipartisanship here. Yeah, it's that's a that's interesting. And, you know, I like the Aaron Sorkin, you know, sort of moment um, insertion into the conversation in Washington, D.C., because it's been, you know, it's, a, it's, it's been a common theme. You know, luckily, you know, Republicans control the House, right? So partisan doesn't mean that everybody gets 50-50. It's a question of whether they can find, you know, a vehicle to work through, right? So in many ways, what you're having, what we're seeing playing out in a democracy is also playing out in Washington, D.C., right? Because we all agree that at the end of the day, there's a majority of people in both houses and also around K Street that all believe that the real way to get this town moving and to get legislation is for some people to figure out how to work together, right? Unlikely to happen, you know, very difficult to see where it is, you know, but, you know, hope springs eternal. So just staying on the house for a second there, Tim, you know, and I have a little bit of house experience, but because it just sounds better from where I sit to say that I'm a creature of the sort of verified air of the Senate, right? I, um, I, I tend to have sort of a view of the house, you know, where I look at the house and I look at all this turmoil and I look at all of the sort of angst that's going on. And I think to myself, isn't that the way the house always acts? Isn't that the way in which sort of the founders, you know, acted is, you know, is to a certain extent the temple that they have, isn't that natural? Oh, absolutely. I mean, from, you know, the beginning of the Republic, you know, the, in the drafting of the Constitution, the House was always envisaged as the body where sort of the passions of the moment were going to be, you know, litigated um, and sort of the first cut of policy and then go into, I think it was called like the the saucer or whatever of the Senate to cool down a little bit. Um, you know, that's, that's all well and good. But um, what you have now is an institution where, you know, the speaker and his majority team are in danger of losing control of the, of the chamber and essentially having their entire agenda hijacked by a fairly narrow group of people. And it has led to uh, members on both sides and, you know, people downtown to start looking at alternative means of passing legislation, most notably the debt limit increase, which is going to come at some point in the first probably six to nine months of this year. Um, and so that, I think, is the real concern, and I think that's where the difference lies is, you know, it's one thing, you know, to be rambunctious and another thing to be sort of almost out of control. And you saw a little bit of that last Friday, right? Yeah, but, I mean, if I think back to, you know, again, you know, you know, you know, Ivan being the optimist is not the natural state of Ivan, so good thing we're taping this in the morning, you know, but, like, you know, to a certain extent, if I think back to my career in Washington, D.C., there have been so many what I would call sort of crazy, 
you know, in retrospect, funny, in retrospect, fun moments in the House of Representatives. I mean, I could go through the line, right, of just, you know, speeches or votes or crazy antics or, you know, like, you know, you know, where professors in universities sit around and think to themselves, my gosh, this is no way to run a country. I mean, I think to a certain extent, the character of the House and this is in thinking of a strategy moving forward, that the character of the house is to be the rowdy bunch, right? So if, if I had to draw a perfect picture for how this movie ends and being an optimist, I'd say the rowdies and the passion just, just create, you know, sound and fury for the first six months in the House of Representatives, right? And the Senate slowly starts to put some stuff together and they sort of meet somewhere in the middle towards the fall. Again, that's kind of crazy to think about and very unlikely to happen. But nonetheless, if you're trying to draw up the art of the possible, you know, in this Congress, that's kind of how you have to think about it. I was just going to say, and there are scenes to work with here, right? There's, you know, the House has pledged to do all the appropriations bills, you know, to consider them individually and to allow amendments in a more open way than they had over the past uh, few years. And then also we could talk about this in a few minutes after uh, Chess um, um, adds uh, his comments, you know, the whole focus on China in this Congress, both in the House and the Senate. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I do. I, I, I see snippets. Right. So as an analyst, as somebody that talks to people around town, clients, you know, um, you know, former em em employers, you know, friends around town, I do see, you know, like I know I know I sound crazy, but I do see snippets of how this comes together over time or it can't. Right. As long as there's enough willing people. Now, what? Shifting over to the Senate, Chess, you know, like you and I both come from that rarefied era of the Senate, and we've been anguished for, you know, a couple years to see the Senate evolve and act a little bit like, well, Tim, no offense, but act a little bit like the House, right? So, um, you know, and, and, you know, all kidding aside, you know, part of the fun of the Senate is that it's a, it's such a strong institution with such cultural norms that sort of make things, you know, work in a way that you can't explain it to constituents. But if you're in the Senate, you can see, you know, you can see the genius of the institution as it operates, right? Um, and we, we lost some of that. You know, and, you know, maybe the, the question to you is starting off with, you know, how did you see the elections play out? But also, you know, are you seeing any snippets that perhaps the Senate may go back a little bit to the institution that we uh, that we all admire so much? Yeah, I, I think just in terms of the election, I think by and large, Democrats were um, pretty pleased with how it turned out. I think getting the extra vote, not a ton has been made of it, but getting to 51 is, is kind of a huge deal procedurally. It means they can clear bills out of committees. They can um, do nominations on a shorter time period without as many votes. Um, so that really clears up a fair amount of sort of procedural headaches. Um, I do think it's worth looking back at what was accomplished last Congress and Democrats um, really got a lot done between the CHIPS bill, the infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, sort of headlining. That, that's, that's a big 
those are big accomplishments. And to get all that done with a 50-50 majority, I think, um, is a huge, huge accomplishment for Democrats. And I actually think that getting those big ticket items out of the way makes Democrats um, a little, probably a little bit more willing to play ball on some more moderate bills and moderate compromises with Republicans. So I think it sort of cleared the decks of the big things Democrats sort of need to do going into 2024 to show that we're delivering for the American people. And I think um, can can kind of open up and free things up to try to, you know, have smaller, you know, coalitions of Republicans and Democrats get together and work on some, you know, it's not, I don't think they're going to pass anything as big as the infrastructure bill again in the next two years, but um, to work on other issues, I think it sort of clears the air, clears the deck. Um, and so I am actually optimistic that um, sort of the timeline you set out, Ivan, um, you know, in terms of, you know, it's going to take the Senate a while to get itself organized, to get rolling. But, you know, hopefully by, you know, mid to late summer, there is some momentum and some legislative momentum. Um, and I, I generally agree that the Senate is a different institution than it was when I worked for Senator Kennedy in the mid 2000s. Um, I was sort of shocked when I came back after being off the Hill for about six years, um, how much the place had changed. That being said, I think um, for the most part, people are up there because they want to legislate and they want to, you know, do do good by their constituents. And so I think that, um, you know, there can be some momentum um, sort of as some sort of return to normal on some of this stuff, especially with the prospects of sort of a extremist you know, coalition in the House. And I think rubs Republicans the wrong way just as much as it rubs, rubs um, Senate Democrats the wrong way. So that may sort of drive the two parties together to sort of show that you know, there are grown-ups in Washington that, that want to get things accomplished. I mean, to a certain extent, Chess, and, and tell me what you think here, but, you know, to a certain extent, you know, it feels like getting that one-vote majority either way, you know, it, by default created the atmosphere for the Senate to work a little bit better, right? Because, A, you know, one vote doesn't actually mean that you can get anything you want done, but procedurally, one vote does mean that you can clear things out of committee, that you can move things a little bit faster, that there's not as big of a logjam. So it seems like, you know, that provides a little bit of a um, sort of momentum, you know, um, uh, sort of instrument for the Senate. You know, and unfortunately, you know, just to be clear here, momentum for the Senate, you know, doesn't mean anything gets done in our lifetimes, right? That's, I think that's a big difference between the House and the Senate, Tim. You know, it's like, you know, in the, in the Senate, you know, when they talk about legislating and they're talking about making policy, like sometimes they're, they're, they're cool and comfortable with it taking a decade. Right. Like, whereas in the house, that's just like kind of like a crazy concept, right? Like, you know, you're there for two years. These guys are there for six years. It just creates kind of a different sort of atmosphere. Um, um, but so, but having said all that, I mean, you know, just turning a little bit to, you know, thinking about how, you know, those of us that are in advocacy in Washington, D.C. need to start thinking about how to move stuff. You know, I've always said that the most important thing, you know, as a lobbyist, as a government relations professional, you know, um, isn't necessarily that, you know, the people that you associate with politically, you know, are in charge. That's helpful. That's helpful, right? Or yeah, that's that's helpful. But the most important thing is actually that stuff is getting to the president's desk, right? Because ultimately, ultimately, you know, there are there are PR firms that get hired to change perceptions of things or how people think of them. But ultimately, we get hired to get stuff done. 
So we need stuff to be moving in order for us to be able to do our job. I am confident that that stuff is going to be moving because the last six chaotic years in American history have been incredibly, incredibly productive, right? So if you think about all the stuff that got done, whether you agree with it or not, but stuff got done when Donald Trump was president of the United States in the first two years, you know, uh, you know, and you add COVID, like it's been a really productive period. So I think, so I think we're going to be able to uh, get stuff done and see things. Now, for, the, for our last portion here, right, you know, I, I do think that that timeline that I talked about, Tim and Jess, which is sort of like sound and fury, you know, Senate chugs along. At some point, they get together and figure out what they can do and move forward. Um, you know, I, I think one possibility is that it happens this year. I think the more probable thing is that this occurs over the next, you know, four to six years, right? So like, if you're thinking about big pieces of legislation, I think you have to start planning on the people in charge gonna be, are going to be changing drastically. Right. We'll start with the House, Tim, about how, you know, your thoughts on how to start thinking about that. But I will say in the House of Representatives, I think for the next decade, the, the, the House of Representatives is going to flip back and forth because, you know, the the structural advantages that, you know, that Republicans, you know, had, you know, leading into election cycle after election cycle are kind of gone. Right. You know, because the districts aren't, you know, aren't as um, gerrymandered as they were before. So I think those seats that gave them the majority are just as easily going to flip the other way. And perhaps in a presidential year, you see the surge. But like more likely every year, it's going to be a toss up as to who's going to control the House. So how do you think about the House long term, four to six years, Tim? So I actually completely agree with you that, you know, the only constant in the House, um, you know, that I see over the sort of mid-term is kind of change. And that we are going to, you know, we're going to be in a period where, you know, the two parties are going to be sort of flip-flopping back and forth with narrow majorities. And they are going to have to, you know, learn to legislate within that. And there's been a real premium put in both parties to, you know, maintaining sort of party allegiance and, you know, not straying um, out of bounds and cutting side deals with the opposition. And that mentality, I think, is going to have to, you know, fall away, you know, even more than it has begun to perhaps in the upper chamber in order for things to get done. You know, I did my first stint on the Hill between 1986 and 1991. And, you know, that was a time when there was plenty of, you know, bitterness, um, especially in the House. There was, you know, the whole Jim Wright fiasco, for those of you who are old like me um, will remember. And it was sort of the beginning of the rise of Newt Gingrich. But at the same time, you know, they got things done. They fought like cats and dogs between nine, nine and five, and then, you know, would sort of go out, cut a deal between five and seven, and then come back and vote on it. And somehow we need to return to that. I don't know whether that's going to happen in the 118th Congress, but I'm optimistic because the alternative is not tenable. Yeah, I mean, looking ahead, I think it's going to be um, much like the House pretty tight. I know the map doesn't look great for Democrats next year, but they said that previous elections so you know who 
that is all I have to say is who knows um, who's going to control in two years. Um, I do think it'll be there'll be tight majorities either way, sort of going forward. Um, and I think as some of the old guards start to retire, um, folks like Shelby and Leahy who left last year or th- this year, um, and looking ahead, you know, I, I think there is a sort of second generation, like young by Senate standards, I guess, um, that are sort of champing at the bit to to take control, and I think have been really turned off by a lot of the um, pettiness and, and rancor that has sort of typified the body the last you know six to eight years. So you know, I think there is a, there is a chance there for sort of um, a fresh start going forward. Um, but you know, I envision tight majorities. And again, as you said, by nature of six-year terms, you have people that are able to sort of forge relationships. Um, and, you know, when the, you know, the right environment is in the Petri dish, a lot can get done. So, Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. So just in, in, in closing, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it seems to me that there's a big generational shift taking place, probably more visibly, you know, in the Democratic Party, but it's also occurring in the Republican Party, right? Um uh, visibly occurring in the Democratic Party because, you know, new leadership in the House of Representatives with a young, diverse leaders, you know, we're going to have, you know, new, you know, we have new young governors around the country. We're going to have new, you know, sort of senators or Senate candidates in big states like California and Michigan, maybe other states. So I think, you know, so, so I think that it's, it's an, in, for me anyways, you know, in my closing thoughts, and we'll go around in my closing thoughts, it's, uh, I, I, I find it very uplifting, yet a little bit odd that in this right after the elections, like Democrats are just in a really good mood, right? They're in a really good mood because even though they lost the House, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And they've got these great new leaders that, you know, like and we're, we're sort of in that honeymoon phase, Right, where everybody's sort of like just rallying around the leader. Everybody's, you know, thinking about the next election cycle, you know, looking at all these great governors that got elected around the country, you know, and then, you know, as all of this is go- goes through, like, you know, the one narrative that somehow escaped all the headlines is that Joe Biden's running for reelection. Right. So, you know, I think, I think, if, you know, Democrats, you know, Democrats are in kind of a unique spot right now. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's important to keep in mind that this is the honeymoon phase, but I think this is going to be a very different minority, uh, in the House of Representatives than you've seen in a long time. You know, um, much more engaged, much more sort of focused on, um, teen things up for two years from now in a very realistic way. And I think a Senate that is probably going to be more functional than it has been, which is not to say that things are going to get done because a functional Senate just means, you know, that there's less quorum calls, right? And that people are talking together about big pieces of legislation. And ultimately, as I always say in the Senate, you know, the Senate's working well when everybody's equally unhappy about what happened. So, Tim, closing thoughts on your side. So, you know, um, I think if someone wants a sense of, you know, where the House is going in terms of dynamics, um, a great place to start would be to go back and watch um, the speeches by both Hakeem Jeffries and Speaker McCarthy last Friday into Saturday night, um, which most people, sane people at least, were sleeping through. Um, you know, I think that there is a, there is energy and optimism among 
uh, Democrats, I agree with you, Ivan, that we're in the honeymoon phase. Um, but all things considered, uh, I think that the prospect for Democrats to, you know, sort of meaningfully contribute in the House um, is, you know, much greater uh, over this cycle than than we had thought it would be a few months ago. And actually, you know, I kind of share your guarded optimism. Tess, over to you. Yeah, I, mean, I think um, the way I look at it, you know, in the Senate side and to some extent with Dems in the House, um, I think there is a lot of pride of what Democrats have accomplished in the last two years. Um, and I think there is um, a sense we want to try to do what we can to continue that momentum um, legislatively and then roll that into, you know, the 2024 election, which will be upon us um, before we know it. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, there's not gotten a lot of headlines that Biden's running, but I think, again, there'll be a distinction drawn between what should be a fairly organized Democratic uh primary process versus what, you know, could be a, you know, a jungle primary in uh, the Republican side with, you know, depending on what uh, President Trump decides, um, with a lot of members and running, a lot of governors running, um, and sort of, you know, potential for chaos to ensue. So I think as Democrats, um, I I think we are in, for once, in, in a good and organized position going forward. Terrific. Well, thank you for being uh, the first guests on the podcast this year. That's it. That's all. It's politics. It's the life we've chosen for ourselves. Thank you for listening.